In series four of our podcast, we'll be exploring the question, why do good people follow bad leaders? Why is poor leadership so endemic? What is it about power dynamics that means that sometimes the poorest leaders rise so high? And finally, why do organizations still employ people who display dark triad traits? Welcome to another episode of Ghostlights, the Thompson Harrison podcast series. I'm Gavin Weeks. I'm Thompson Harrison's Director of Innovation and Development, and I'm also a clinically trained psychologist and coach. I'm very excited to have a conversation today with John Stokes. John also has a background in clinical psychology. He's an associate fellow at Oxford University's Said Business School and a founder of Stokes Jolly, a leadership consulting and advisory firm. And John teaches on numerous programs in Oxford, including the Oxford Strategic Leadership Program. He writes extensively about leadership and coaches senior executives. But today, I'm looking forward to talking to him about toxic leadership. John, welcome to Ghost Lights. I wonder if we could start by you giving the listeners a sense of the kind of work that you do and the lenses that you bring to your leadership thinking and practice. Yes, and thanks very much for having me on. So I work as a leadership consultant, as you've described, and a leadership coach. So I work with heads of organizations. I've worked with many, many heads of organizations of all kinds, public and private sector. And I work with them in simple terms to make them as effective a leader as they can be. So I'm thinking with them about their personal style as a leader, but also about the strategic questions that they are thinking about and how they connect and communicate with people. Thanks, John. And it's really about that question of style that we are going to talk about today. You've recently been writing about two leadership styles, what what you refer to as charismatic leadership and inspiring leadership. And I'm conscious that we use the term charisma quite broadly to describe some sense or some mix of warmth, extroversion, confidence, and the ability to really engage people, the, the kinds of things that we often look for in, in leaders. But in your work, you've been exploring what happens at the extreme end of charisma. Could you perhaps begin by describing what you mean by charismatic leadership and how you differentiate that from uh, inspiring leadership? Sure. A, a little bit of background might make sense here, though, which is that I think like you, I, in the past anyway, I was involved in the assessment of people who are seeking leadership roles. Uh, using psychological assessment techniques and interviews. And uh, one of the things that often came up was somebody would be said to be not charismatic enough. And I puzzled about this because I wasn't sure really that being more charismatic was necessarily what the organization needed or indeed would make the person a better leader. So it started out with that. And as you say, there often is a requirement that people should be charismatic. But in a sense, what I've got to say is really bringing that into question. Is it, is it quite such a virtue as we think? Yes, of course, people need to be able to connect and uh, emotionally empathize and speak in terms that are inspiring to people. But whether charisma is really a good word to use here is obviously what I'm questioning. I also got interested in it because I was running workshops with GSK for their senior leaders and they called their workshop Inspiring Leadership. So I got to the question of, well, what's the difference between charismatic and inspiring? Are they really the same thing or are they different? The way I've tackled this question is to pull them apart and say, I'm going to say they are different. And then what happens? So they're sort of pure forms that I'll be describing uh, of charismatic and inspiring 
leadership. And I approach it with a psychoanalytic lens. In other words, I think there are unconscious processes going on in the relationship between leaders and followers, and that followers project things that they would like to be, people they would like to be, onto leaders. Freud first described this in the 1930s when he was seeing the rise of Hitler and fascism in Germany and was trying to explain why it was that a single man could have such huge impact on crowds who would be effectively adoring of him. And his conclusion was that what was happening is that people had an ideal of how they would like to be powerful, competent, confident, and so on, and that they were projecting this person they would like to be unconsciously onto, in this case, Hitler, person we would be very critical of, of course, but he was much loved. And so this love consists not really of a love of the actual person so much as of the person you've projected onto them. So in in a curious way, what I'm saying is you're really falling in love, as I think charismatic leadership in a strong sense entails that, a kind of falling in love. You fall in love with a projected ideal version of yourself, which has a tremendous hold over you. And we can see this in pop stars and politicians. It's fairly evident there that people are projecting, at least in the case of pop stars, a person they would like to be. John, that's fascinating. There's so much in there that we could that we could explore, but perhaps perhaps two things I'm interested to dig in a little bit more to. The one is the concept of projection. It's a it's a term that often we we use, um, psychologists particularly. But could you give us a sense of of what projection really means in fairly kind of simple terms? And the second thing I'd love I'd love to see if we could explore a bit more is: Do you see particular examples of this charismatic leadership style today that are good for people to have in their minds as they listen to you talk? Sure. So the idea of projection, again, a psychoanalytic idea, is is the idea that uh, uh, it stems from the idea that we are not conscious or unconscious of certain aspects of ourselves which we disapprove of in some way or other. And what happens in projection is we project an aspect of ourselves onto another person. So let us say we are angry, but don't want to recognize that we're angry, say with a parent figure as a child. And what we project is a fear, as a feeling, I should say, that the, the parent is angry with us. So in that sense, the thing gets reversed. And I feel somebody else is angry with me, though, in fact, I'm angry with them. So, I mean, I could obviously talk further about it, but people probably have a, people use it in everyday language. Psychoanalysis, one of its impacts has been to uh, change the way in which we talk about human beings and projection is mm. one of those cases. Often what we do when we are particularly annoyed with somebody is we're really projecting a part of ourselves that we might like to be. So we can get very annoyed by somebody who's confident and that can be very irritating to us. But maybe it's also because rather like I'm talking with a charismatic leader, they represent something we would like to be. So you also asked me about today and what's happening in the world today and Although I've been working on these ideas for many years, we have got a wonderful example of the distinction between the two in the case of President Putin and President Zelensky of Ukraine. So President Putin is an archetypal charismatic figure. He himself is not a particularly charismatic individual. There have been some excellent podcasts on the BBC, people who knew him before he became president. And he was actually quite a slight character, relatively quiet, somewhat shy, confident, yes, but not charismatic. And he's an example of somebody who's built himself up into being a charismatic leader 
And the charisma that he has is in part simply that he's got the word president in front of him. And so charisma can happen through um, our projection onto somebody called the president. And if we contrast that with Zelensky, here we have a man who um, has no political um, history particularly. He becomes president. Before that, he was an actor or a comic, in fact, and therefore a very skillful communicator. And perhaps I should speak now a little bit about the difference between charismatic and inspiring. Would that be a good moment? Yes, it would be, John. Thank you. Because I'm wanting to argue that Zelensky represents uh, what I'm calling inspiring leadership, where the charismatic person is one who really comes into being at a time of crisis when a group or an organization or a country feels itself under threat and somebody who offers to solve this problem as if by magic. There's no work required. We simply follow the charismatic uh, leader. The inspiring leader operates in a different way. It's not and not involving projection in the same way. The inspiring leader, the process behind is still one of love, but it's of a more mature kind of love. Again, built into the human social species. So falling in love is how we create bonds initially. And then there's a more mature form of love, let's say parental love, the love that a parent has for a child, which is a more mature form and puts the child's interests actually ahead of the parents. That's that's the point of it. Whereas in falling in love, it's it's not the same, not the same situation. So an inspiring leader is somebody who's interested in the development of the followers and has various characteristics that I've described, including things like being an example to people of what they could be like, not by some magical means, but by learning and copying from the leader, rather like we do from our parents in the first case. Somebody who articulates a future that we find inspiring, enlivening. The word inspiring, by the way, comes come as origin anyway, is uh, from breathing life into. So somebody who inspires us, breathes life into us, but makes us more enlivened. Doesn't make us dependent on the inspiring leader, but enables us to bring out the best in ourselves through uh, being developed. So it's more akin to a teacher-pupil or a parent-child relationship in a healthy sense. That's fascinating. And I think just in that in that case study, there's there's so much to unpack, particularly as you, as you say that when you think of Putin, other than sort of topless horse riding and his you know, constantly turning up in judo outfits at the Olympics and, and things, you don't think of somebody who is particularly engaging to other people. And when you think, when you see Zelensky, somebody that until a few months ago, nobody really even knew, you get that very strong sense of almost an immediate ability to, to convey warmth and, and connection. So they, you know, at the superficial level, they are, they present very differently. But then also in what they, in what they say, you have Putin's very simple narrative about the you know Ukraine was always part of Russia and now we're clearing of it of all these Nazis and you have Zelensky who you know you would think would just rely on a very kind of fear-based narrative often tries to convey this message of hope which seems much more like your description of um inspiring com conversation you know articulating a future that we find enlivening I think were the words that you used mm. Yes, because what the, 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 the charismatic leader really persuades the group that he or she has the solution. I am the answer. I am the charism in a, in a religious sense. So I have this charismatic quality. And because of my connection to the future, I know what we should do. You don't have to bother yourselves. Just follow 
me, Trump has many of these characteristics. He's not really inspiring people to do anything very much. He just has the answer to questions. And this is attractive to people who are feeling downbeat, uh, oppressed and so forth. And so he has enormous uh, influence over them. So it's, it's as if we have the answer. It's an as if world that the charismatic leader creates. Whereas the inspiring leader is really asking the group the question, what if we did this? What if, so Zelensky, obviously you can all think of examples where Zelensky is really saying, what if we stood up to these people? What if we thought of ourselves in these ways? What if we thought of ourselves as heroes against the uh, Russian invaders and so forth? So he's painting a picture into the future of things that people could try and do. He doesn't have the answer. Indeed, he confesses often he doesn't have the answer. Whereas Putin certainly never does that. Putin has the answer. It's somewhere in Putin's head and it will get delivered. John, it's really interesting to, to contrast the way that they communicate differently. But in your thinking, in your work, have you come to develop any theories as how they think differently? You know, the charismatic leader, do they really think they're the answer? Or is that in some way a kind of defense or a kind of rejection of um, fear or, or complexity on their part? Well, yes, I do. I think they do think they have the answer. They they are the answer, is, is more precisely it. I think I am the answer and have a strong conviction that they, they are the answer. Um, I mean, their thinking is quite limited. It's They're not particularly rigorous in their thinking or logical in their thinking. It's an, it's a it's a primitive emotional appeal. I am the answer, and I can if you follow me, you will you know go to the promised land or whatever. So it, it's it's a form of of psychology in which uh, the leader has has needs. And if we try and analyze these people, and the trouble is you know you can't really analyze people at the distance that we are in. But I one has had patients in the past when I was a psychoanalyst, and I can think of clients I've had who are very keen to uh, have the adoration of others, the admiration of others. And these are, are people reminded of the character uh, Tinkerbell in Peter Pan. I don't know if you've only been to Peter Pan with um, the pantomime, not the pantomime, the play, Peter Pan. Anyway, there's a point in the play where everybody is told they have to clap hands for Tinkerbell or her light will go out. And so the children all clap their hands and the light goes down and they clap louder and the light goes up. So it's, the charismatic leader is a bit like that. They're entirely, in fact, dependent on their followers. They are, they are hungry. It's called mirror hungry in the jargon. They want to be admired. They want to be, they want to see themselves being admired in the eyes of others. And contrarywise, the followers are ideal hungry, meaning that they uh, are looking for some ideal which they don't themselves feel they have. They don't feel they have the solution to their own problems. They don't feel by organizing themselves they could solve their problems. They feel they must have some special person to do that. So it's, um, quite a basic kind of psychology. You could use the word narcissism there if you wanted to about the leaders. Um, but there are certainly people who have a great hunger for love and generally don't have uh, what you might call normal childhoods. There's often been some deprivation or violence in their background. And this, again, is why asking people to be charismatic is, I think, not, not a useful way to think. Certain people have had those experiences and a very small proportion of those people uh, may become leaders. Generally, political leaders, indeed leaders of large organizations, typically don't have quite a smooth ride as children. Whereas um, majority of people may not have had those difficulties, but they can be inspiring without necessarily needing to be charismatic. 
John, as you were talking about um, Peter Pan and clapping hands for Tinkerbell or, or her light will go out, it, I couldn't help but think of Donald Trump on stage. Um, mm. If we if we leave the kind of the politics aside and we don't stray too much into two psychologists offering offering diagnosis of a president we've never met, one thing that you that you can obviously see is this: he he absolutely seems alive when he's on stage, just talking in an almost kind of ongoing monologue as people cheer wildly and get worked up into seemingly more and more of a frenzy. Absolutely. Yes, I mean, I entirely agree. These people, if they're actors or pop stars, often will say, the, the time I'm most alive is when I'm on stage. And that's because of the energy and excitement that they get from the audience, which makes them feel they know who they are. And in the case of actors, who often have fairly complex or confused ideas about themselves, one reason why they've chosen to be actors, because then they can choose to be somebody that uh, having that opportunity it gives them a gives them a sense of who they are, and likewise with pop stars. And we know when famous people um, fall out of favour with the public that this can have quite dramatic consequences for them. Their world literally falls apart, and they start to fall apart because they aren't held by the crowd with the adoration of the crowd. And of course, we're seeing we're seeing examples of of that playing out before us as well. With you know, with with Will Smith at the. Uh at the Oscars um, with, with Johnny Depp's travails in, in court over his his relationship and the in the dysfunctionality within it. And these I think these obvious examples, these popular examples, whether they're from politics or whether they're from, from entertainment, can be really instructive. But can you say anything about charismatic leadership that might be might be closer to home? How does charismatic leadership show up and potentially become problematic inside the kind of organizations and the teams that you that you work with? Well, often, I mean, I've done quite a lot of work with founder founder businesses, so people who founded their own business, and I usually meet them at a point where uh, the organisation has been successful, but is now faced with a crisis. Often, often associated. I know you had Robin Dunbar on an earlier podcast. I saw that, and of course, he's famous for his number of 150 people, which my version of which is tribes in human history get to about 150 people, and then they break up. And uh, so founder organizations similarly get to a scale where they can't any longer be run as a tribe, which is an extended version of the family without much structure. They need to be some version of a, of a, of a corporate uh, entity with much more defined roles. So I'm often meeting them at around that stage when there's some sense of crisis or some sense of not quite sure what to do with my business now and so on. And these people are often, often very charismatic individuals and even more so now they are associated with something perhaps very, very successful and perhaps they made a lot of money. So the problem then is who's going to run this organization uh, other than the founder? And besides the difficulty of the founder letting go because it's so much part of their life, there's also the difficulty that often they haven't actually developed leaders who might take over from them. And indeed, people who might have done have often exited the business because they get frustrated and fed up because they're not given much choice or authority uh, to run to run their parts of the business. So I think um, that's a kind of answer to the question. I think which is which is these charismatic leaders, they they can be very f- functional for a while. But the problem of who succeeds the charismatic leader is very problematic. I mean, maybe Trump is one of those phenomena. I mean, he has a tremendous hold over the Republican Party, which is it's a bit of a mystery to me. I dare say some politician can explain it to me. But it's as, it's as if he's he's caused a dysfunction uh, that really nobody has the same appeal as him. And therefore, 
they can't find anybody other than him. And certainly you see this, as I say, in founder-led businesses. And being the follower to, or the subsequent leader, as I'm meaning here, to the charismatic leader is um, is really uh, very, very difficult. And there are many uh, times when one's seen people who've been charismatic and having difficulty uh, finding a successor. And then when there is a successor, they are inevitably a disappointment because they almost inevitably don't have the same magic. So, you know, the classic, classic one will be Prime Minister Thatcher and then Prime Minister Major, who wasn't charismatic at all. And the Labour Party is beset with this problem of, well, we need somebody like Blair who's charismatic. And, of course, the Labour Party hasn't found anybody, quotes, charismatic, close quotes. I'm not sure that is the answer to their problems, but that is that is how it is being portrayed. I think Starmer could be an inspiring leader, but he's not going to be a charismatic leader. And, and um, I think he could learn to be an inspiring leader. That's one of the things about inspiring leadership. Anybody can have a go at it. It's about connecting. It's about having being prepared to have difficult conversations with people. It's demonstrating an, an integrity. It's about aff- affirming people when they're doing well. It's being aware of the situation you're in. It's about emotionally connecting. These are all skills, and they can be learnt. And the theatre is is the obvious place to go. A theatre coach can help you become more inspiring, but can't help you to become more charismatic, at least in the sense in which I'm using it. There are many books saying how to be charismatic, but I think they're really talking about how to be inspiring. Yeah, those kind of books seem to go a little bit back to more what I was talking about at the beginning of our conversation around warmth and empathy and engagement and the the ability to foster some sort of connection with with people, and Mm. not in what you're describing, which is almost the the ability to create a kind of frenzy in people to create I- incredibly dedicated followers who who somehow make themselves smaller in order to follow you when when you were talking about about founder leaders where their potential successors have often left the organization is it is it your thinking that charismatic leaders need a particular kind of follower in order to function or to be effective yes i mean it- as I've said, they need somebody who's going to admire them. So that's somebody who's relatively sees themselves as relatively weaker than the leader, and hence stronger characters will often have left by the time this question of succession comes along. So yes, they they are are, are a more um, supplicant, dependent type of people who themselves are not really equipped for leadership roles. John, in in organisations. Is it the case that you just have some people, in your view, that are these weaker, more supplicant people who are not well-suited to leadership? Or are people sort of squeezed into that position because they're not given the um, the scope or the, or the breadth or the development to be able to, to grow for themselves? Oh, sure. Sure, that is the case, for sure. So, yes, I mean, I'm a, like you, a great believer that you can certainly develop people and develop people's leadership skills at whatever level. We can all get better at leadership. So it, it isn't that they're incapable of that, but they may be in a mindset because the mindset of the organization is, is to idealize the, in this case, the founder uh, of the, of the company and relatively speaking to say other people are much less significant. So these are people who often don't have uh, strong self-esteem. And one thing we do want in leaders is people who at least appear to be confident. You need to put on a performance of confidence because because that's what followers want. They want to feel you, you believe in your own solutions. And if you have low self-esteem, then that's a much more difficult 
thing to do. So I suppose to answer your question is to say, I think people who've, who've grown up in an organization and been working for a charismatic leader have often been battered and bruised by that experience. And it um, takes a while for them to reestablish their self-esteem. It may be simpler to, to leave the organization and uh, develop elsewhere. Yeah, John, you also talk about um, the impact of context on leadership styles. And mm. I, I was thinking, you know, when I was reading your recent paper that in Oxford, you run the session where you talk about leadership in the swamp. Um, and by the swamp, you're, of course, talking about the, the complexity and uncertainty that leaders always face. But of course, we all face that kind of uncertainty. Can, can you say anything about how charismatic leaders deal with uncertainty? How they how they potentially either deny or make us feel that the world is a bit more simple than it really than it really is. Yeah, uh, I kind of said that in a way when I say that they you know they offer a simple solution. They have a simple formula. Um, they have the answer. We should follow the formula, and we will get there. So um, they deal with complexity by by simplification. By saying, uh, by, by denying the complexity and, and subtlety of things, and focus on one or two aspects. Now, in many ways, all leaders have to do this. I mean, one of the, the things a leader has to do is perhaps pick the top three or five things that are most important for their organisation and focus seventy, eighty percent of their time on those five things, where there are potentially a hundred of those of those things. So, I think leadership is always about reducing and simplifying things but not in the sense that I have the answer and we don't need to do any thinking together. The difference with an inspiring leader is somebody who, who doesn't, who is, as you referred earlier, somebody who's relatively humble and, and says, oh, well, I don't have the answer, but we can maybe get the answer if we work on this together. Whereas the charismatic leader is in a kind of black and white world um, where things are either absolutely good or absolutely bad. And we attack the absolutely bad and we are, are ourselves, or I am at least the leader, the absolutely good. So it's a very simple world in which is divided into good and bad states, essentially, whereas the inspiring leader sees the world as more complex than that, that there are shades of grey about things. We need to look at things from different points of view. We need to understand other people's uh, attitudes and points of view. It's a more nuanced view of the world. Now, this is not to say that uh, charismatic leaders can't be highly effective. They can be highly effective, and in wartime, uh, perhaps to a degree, they're necessary. I'm talking about commanders of armies more than politicians. They maybe need that because if you're going to put your life on the line, you need to feel there is a force bigger than me, something that I'm part of that's much bigger than me, that I'm prepared to lay down my life for. So having been critical and negative about charismatic leadership, I think there are occasions where it absolutely is what human groups need. I wonder if in, in those situations that you're, that you're describing there, war being an obvious example of it, that you the, the best leaders are the people who actually see the situation as complex. They do a bit more of what you talk about inspiring leaders doing being able to say, well, there's three, four, five things that we really need to focus our energies on because we can't, because we can't deal with everything, but that they can also put that into terms or, or make some kind of emotional connection with, you know, with that so that it doesn't become, um, very dry and technocratic. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they are realize that to win, whether it's a war or, or, um, 
commercial competition of some kind. You need to harness everybody's resources as far as you're able to do that. And so everybody needs to be able to see the part of the problem they can contribute to uh, and get feedback on their performance. Again, the the example of Russia at the moment with um, the hierarchy and the lack of information that was being passed from the from the bottom of the organization to the top is a classic feature of of a hierarchical charismatic form of leadership where the instructions come from the top downwards but of course Putin is many hundreds if not thousands of miles away from the battlefield but in a sense he's he issues his commands and they get interpreted um, but may not be relevant to what should be done on the ground, whereas Zelensky is harnessing people in an entirely different way. There's much more autonomy of decision-making, one gets the impression at least, uh, actually on the battlefield. Yes, he actually seems to to trust the judgment of the people who the message is going to, mm. in a way that you know, trust is not a word that you'd use in connection with anything that we know about uh, Putin's way of leading or, or communicating. No. A lot of the the things that you're thinking, have been talking about, John, make me think of political leaders and founders where something is built around a person. They've, they've garnered a a following that they can or may, may or may not exploit. In organizations, you, you talked about having been in assessment for a long time where we're looking for particular, um, characteristics or capabilities. And we probably think, Maybe it's a fantasy that we are able to select for the charisma that we want and select out the charisma that we don't want that, that, that could be toxic. Can we? Or, or is that really not, you know, are we really not paying attention to these things as much as we should do? I think you can. I think a skilled interviewer using perhaps some assessment devices, you know, it is possible to make that distinction between somebody who has a kind of toxic form of charisma, one might call it, from a more benign form of it. Yes, I think that's possible. However, it's not only the assessor who's going to make the decision. Um, Organisations that are facing a crisis often seek a charismatic leader and will not be particularly critical of the charismatic leader. So I think whilst the assessor may be able to do that, you, you, you may not be successful in persuading the board, if that's the case of this because the charismatic individual and they will have spent much less um, close time with such an individual is is inevitably by definition quite beguiling and persuasive so yes i think it's possible indeed i think that everybody who's attracted to senior leadership roles probably has an element of potential uh, narcissism about them and th- will have a heightened view of themselves and that's sort of a part of the characteristics of somebody who will get senior leadership roles, they've got to be rather confident and have a high opinion of themselves, more or less. I mean, it's complex, but they may also have a very self-critical attitude towards themselves. They're not mutually exclusive. In fact, they're not at all mutually exclusive. They're two sides of the same coin often. But I think one of the things that organizations need to, to recognize is that the people who will get into senior roles will always be people who may put their interests ahead of the organization. And that having a kind of health check um, system of some kind, maybe it's, an, an I would say, not an annual appraisal quite, but why not, actually, having said that? Why not? I mean, the chief executive has an annual appraisal with the chairman, and one of the things the chairman should be doing is realizing that people who are attracted to chief executive positions have complex motives for doing this, and that some examination of where they are on the spectrum of 
toxic versus benign, uh, might be said to be part of the responsibility uh, of an organisation. John, I'm conscious of um, I'm conscious of time, and we've probably only got one question left. But you talking about the the kind of external checks and balances that you can have that that appraisal system that looking out for traits and behaviors that that might be concerning could you say a bit more about what some of those some of those behaviors might what would some of the signs be that you'd be looking out for in in that case i think centrally that they're they have difficulty seeing things from other people's points of view there's a point of view that is my point of view and my point of view is necessarily better than others and i would if I'm this kind of more toxic form of charismatic leader, will tend to uh, quash um, and squash other people and their points of view. They will create conditions lacking in psychological safety, as we call it, in which people feel they can't speak up. They don't feel um, they're able to make independent relationships with each other without informing the charismatic leader. I mean, how much challenge there is in the in the executive team would be another feature. If there's a lack of challenge, then it may be that that charismatic forces, if you will, have taken over. So those are those are just some. You've talked a little bit about these being styles which are which people have potential for. So people, some people tend to be more charismatic. Mm. Um, that charisma in certain relationships that can become that can become toxic. But in a coaching relationship, for example, are you able to help people to keep a balance on that style, to be able to use some of the energy it gives, but not in ways that are potentially damaging? I think these strongly charismatic individuals very rarely come for coaching. Um, they, they may do if they're forced to, because they can also be bullies. And bullies can be told they must go and have coaching, but yes. the success rate isn't great, it has to be said. So uh, unless they really feel their job is on the line, they're unlikely to make changes. I think, uh, I mean, you're talking about more sort of more, as it were, normal or ordinary cases of charisma. I think, I think broadly speaking, it can be quite a benign, positive force, but it's, it is dependency inducing and all organizations are structured as dependency hierarchies. So when people go into their organization, they step into a dependent mindset. Um, I think I'd probably just respond by saying, I think one of the things leaders, various levels in organizations need to do is realize they have created or they are now responsible for at least an organization that induces dependency because we want compliance, but we also want creativity. We also want freedom of thought. So I think it's more a question of being aware that creating the, how you can create conditions in which people can have their own minds and think for themselves, that that is part of what I would call inspiring leadership and that one's always up against the fact that, that as I say, uh, organizations are dependency-inducing devices. John, that just just at the, probably at the end of our time, that makes me think there's a there's a whole other several hours of conversation that that could had around the kind of leaders that you need in those organisations where people have more creativity, where people are given more freedom of thought and freedom to freedom to act, and how you foster that more inspiring style of leadership. But alas, we we're running out of time, and I and I just wanted to ask you for if if somebody was listening to this and they were and they were interested. Um, and some of the topics that you that you talk about, what would be a resource or a book or something that they could they could explore to to read more deeply? There's a, a colleague of mine called Manfred Ketz de Vries who's written a whole uh, number of books on on leadership, 
and uh, and he has also written about charisma. You could, if you're more of a scholarly type, go back to Max Weber, whose name we haven't mentioned, we should really have done, who was the first person to describe charismatic uh, leadership. Um, and obviously, I've published an article which is perhaps a bit technical from sort of jargon-ridden, you might find, written for psychoanalysts, but um, perhaps we could put a link to that. Yes, I think we, we, we will, John. I think that's a, that's a good idea. And it is, um, it is a scholarly and academic, but it's also fascinating. Um, and it's also one that, that we're really, you give the theoretical background to some of, some of what you've talked about, which we haven't had time to, uh, to dig into today. John, a- any final thoughts before we, before we finish up? I suppose the final thought is really those people who are listening. And I dare say charismatic leaders won't be listening to this program because they've no need to get advice from somebody like me (laughs) but just to remind you all that you can be inspiring it's a matter of courage it's a matter of putting yourself out there behaving in a way that you want other people to copy uh, giving people a, a positive picture of the future giving people good and critical feedback all those kinds of things which in 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 both modest and more extensive ways uh things that everybody can develop their their skills at and some of that is, is expanded upon a bit in the article. Great reminder for all of us, John. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a, it's been a great conversation. I'm sure very interesting to, uh, to listen, listen back to. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me. Thanks so much, John. Bye-bye. Bye.